0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on,
0: settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts,
2: calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10
0: to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
3: Summer rucking, it happens so fast. Welcome back to the Ruck Podcast from the Times and Sunday Times. Once again, I'm your host, Alan Dimick, where we've got a bit of a buffet uh, as we keep track of all the summer tours and, wow, what a weekend. 4-0 to the Southern Hemisphere. So we're going around the camps to bring you the latest. First up, we head to Australia where our very own Will Kelher and Alex Lowe pick through the bones of a Wallabies win. The All Blacks ran up the score against Ireland and the NZ Herald's Liam Napier joins us for a chat. It's then off to South Africa where Brendan Nell gives us an update on all things box. And, lucky us, our own Mark Palmer stops backpacking around South America long enough to fill us in on everything Scotland versus the Pumas. But first, here are the boys from Brisbane.
2: Sometimes, when you walk away to work on yourself... That's the best revenge. The words of our spin class instructor in Brisbane ringing in our ears. The ruck is on the ground on the west coast of Australia. We've made it to the other side. We've spun again, Alex. (laughs) I'm here with Alex Lowe. Happy correspondent, of The Times. How's life in Brisbane? I so, guess? well, that
4: that quote I think probably needs to be on the wall of the uh, England changing room on Saturday, doesn't it? When you walk away to work on yourself, it's the best revenge. It's exactly what England need to be doing in Brisbane this week. Uh, I'm good. My legs are a bit wobbly after that spin class, but I do think we need to point out we've had some some contact from friends, some worried other journalists around the world. Our friend Brendan Ell in South Africa being one of them concerned that we might be on a major health kick wellness uh, tour um i can confirm that we're doing our best to just maintain levels um there, there has been a birthday party there's been a, um we were entertained by uh tourists in western australia they showed us the sights a nice craft beer place so i can i can assure people who are worried that t- tour traditions are are being maintained but Listen, we're getting a bit older. We've just got to do our best to try and to try and stay a little bit healthy uh, while we're out on the road. Right.
2: So yes, we've been getting our retaliation in first with the exercise, but now we've talked about that and life on tour. (laughs) Let's talk about Saturday night. So for us, we're recording this on Monday night. We
4: we should say that while we go on tour, just before we hit record, uh, we got the news that Tom Curry's tour is is over. he failed an HIA at half time in the first test, which um, was about half an hour later than we th- thought he might be undergoing one. Uh, it looks like that, that collision, I don't know if you saw it, with with Samu Karevi 14 minutes in, in which his head snapped back rather alarmingly, um, led to him presenting symptoms at half time. We think he probably would have been unavailable for the second test anyway because of the new protocols where other than exceptional circumstances players have to stand down for for 12 days but England have decided to to send him home um he he had a concussion in the six nations went off at half time against wales uh and for player welfare reasons for, for his own recovery he's out of the tour so the conversation over here now is um in terms of looking forward is who comes in um we, we were just chatting with there will we think well, they're not calling anyone else out, so their options are Lewis Ludlam, who is the best ball carrier of of the three contenders, Sam Underhill, most experienced, best defender, biggest tackler, or Jack Willis, who is the best over the ball, and the breakdown was a, an area of real issue for England, wasn't it, on, on yeah, Saturday?
2: Yeah, disaster, and, and I know from our coverage and from elsewhere, and lots of social media stuff, there's... Lot being made about Owen Farrell and Marcus Smith, but having chatted with you over the last couple of days, Alex, we kind of think that while that is a big issue, the breakdown and the speed of ball that Danny Kerr didn't get from it always contributed to the fact that they couldn't get on the front foot. So, I mean, there was something that Dylan Hartley said in the Times on Saturday. There's a lots of things around Australia that want to kill you: spiders, scorpions, snakes, and Michael Hooper. And he <laughs> was he was the menace, wasn't he? I mean. He actually, actually only won one Jackal turnover, but it was with one hand on the goal line that denied an England try that I think if they'd scored it about 56 minutes in may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. But against Australia, you've got to win the ball on the floor. So if it, if it were me, I think I would lean towards Willis or Ludlam rather than Underhill. But what would you say?
4: Well, the other the other sort of option which... We don't think they'll do is that you you sort of try and recreate the kamikaze kids from the World Cup and you play Underhill and Willis or Ludlam and or you play two of the three. To do that you had you have to move Courtney Laws into the second row, and whenever you mention Courtney to Courtney Laws about him playing in the second row, he puts you right as quickly as he possibly can that he doesn't see himself as a lock anymore.
2: He hasn't played this since the 19 World Cup, he always I, says. Yeah,
4: I think he, had, he got moved there, did in the Ireland game when Charlie Ewells was sent off um and he did not enjoy it very much at all. So, although, to the rest of us, that looks like a poss- possibility. It would certainly change the dynamic of of the bat row. uh Eddie Jones would have to persuade his captain to go and play in a role that he doesn't want to do and doesn't see himself as. You know, One of Courtney's issues is, is staying heavy enough uh, and he's he's not really heavy enough to play in the second row. But of course, it's always a balance. What's more important for England in this second test? Is it having a third line-out option or is it being in, you know, an improved breakdown? Um, I would really like to see Jack Willis play because I just think the form he's shown coming back from um, that horrendous injury has been just outstanding. Um, and and Eddie Jones has had him straight back in as soon as he could. There's an, it's, you know Sam Underhill's had a good season in in a in a rubbish Bath team. He, he's been one of their rare shining lights. I think whenever I saw him play, he was he was pretty much doing all he could, fingering the damn stuff at, at times for Bath. Um, and and Lewis Ludlam has had an awesome season for Northampton and and made a real impact. Certainly as a carrier coming off the bench, um, but I would just. I just like to see Jack Willis given a go in a big test, um, which he hasn't had yet. I think he's earning it. I think he's earning that right. Um, and, and, and they'll play Billy at eight, and, and they'll go they'll go Courtney at at, at six. And, and I think they'll probably demand a bit more of everyone else. You talked about that Michael Hooper turnover, uh, brilliant. He only did split second in with one hand, and he was involved in in the turnover towards the end, which was sort of one of the last daggers in the heart for. For England, I think when when uh, Chesson was had carried it, um, and the reason he got there was England's detail wasn't accurate enough. Um, the, the, I think Jamie George slightly overran, fell off the um, fell off who was, uh, fell off Ludlam and, and opened the door to, to Hooper. So they need the detail to be right um, across the uh, uh, across the team, and, and if they can combat the Wallabies on the floor and make it cleaner and quicker that will help um Smith and Farrell. Now there's a whole other conversation, isn't there, Will, yeah. which which you know, we're we're a couple of days on here now. It's it's Monday night. Um you know if we think back to Saturday night, as I sort of try to put it right in the paper today, like if you if you stop the game after an hour, you think there's only one winner. England hadn't been great. Smith and Farrell hadn't been great, but they were just building momentum and you thought well Hooper can't keep winning goal line turnovers. And there's only one winner, and once once you press play again after an hour it just it turned on six was it turned on Corabetti winning that that restart over Jack Noel the first time that Australia hadn't kicked straight to Freddie Stewart
2: and he was left on his own he had no left support. on
4: his own suddenly Karevi's piling forward and you really realize the value of having that power player in midfield that England don't have and they they tried to create with Joe Cockle Singer being picked, but he just didn't he, he didn't show up really for me, disappointingly. Um and then it brings us to the conversation of, of midfield balance, which has been a constant discussion, hasn't it? <laughs> Eleven <Will>? years. <laughs> um you know, Smith Smith and, and Farrell and, and you know, they've only played together twice. Like yeah. I know the system's been in place through the Six Nations and with with Slade, but these two have only played together twice. And we've already got calls from Clive Woodward, Lawrence Delalio, Will Greenwood—that Greenwood, yeah. the that England can only play one of them. Um, I mean, I think if you look at the the players on this tour, you drop a Smith and a Farrell. You, I don't think you're making the team better by picking as good as they are uh, a debutant midfielder, whether it's Dingwall or Porter, no. or Freeman out of position. So the, Eddie's going to stick with these two. The question is, really, Will? I mean, you've you've watched a lot of. Um, Harlequins this season we've we seen Farrell coming back with Saracens and actually as we discussed I think was it last week after the in squad looking like a like he was trying to evolve his game and he's spoken yeah, he's spoken about um, one of his regrets through his career was not playing what he sees as much
2: thinking about the system and the phase that was coming next mm. rather than one he was actually so playing the, yeah. so the,
4: the post-match discussion on those two was whether it, it can ever work if you've got a, a player who's... Uh, once the pressure's on, a player whose instinct is is pattern and shape and a player in Smith whose instinct is let's you know, go and attack the line, make things happen. Can they find a common ground where their instinct becomes the same? Um Now, I mean, we talked to Farrell afterwards. He he, he said that's their challenge, really, that they need to find someone where they can become... In, that it gets ingrained in them. Do, mm. do you... What's your view on, on those two? Because you, you, studied, you studied them after the game, particularly, I guess, yeah. in the build-up to that Curry Tom Curry break.
2: I think that lots of different points to make on Smith-Farrell. I would say, firstly, they tried that same play four times in the first 15 minutes, where Farrell's at 10, they've got a, co- sort of a couple of forward runners next to him to um, go in front and distract the defence, and then Smith comes around the back, And it actually worked really well because they threw that one, two, three, four times, didn't really get anywhere, someone dropped a pass, whatever happened. But then on the fifth one, they threw it to the front and Curry and he goes through the hole and they almost score in the right hand corner with Marchant, although Corabetti nails him. So that was, as you were saying, if you're playing a tape and you said this is an England victory, you go, "Okay, yeah, that." It's almost like it's watching someone playing football and they have loads of chances, mm. they just miss, and then you think, right, and if they win 2 0, you go, yeah, okay,
4: that, was, that was, what was happening. That was a setup, Like They set up the mm. Aussies with that and it worked. They just didn't score from it. Yeah. But but it, it worked.
2: Um, but then just going back to the, the sort of dynamic and talking about the midfield, I think it was something we were discussing a bit earlier before we press record. The blueprint from. England's best period under Eddie Jones in 2016 and 2017, where they won, they only lost one game in one and a half years, was actually quite, on paper, quite a lateral 9-10, 12-13. It was Danny Carroll, Ben Youngs, more so Youngs than Kerr. It was Ford and Farrell, which changed a couple of times and didn't work, like Burrell coming in and then getting substituted off in Australia. And then Jonathan Joseph at 13. There was no Manu Mm -hmm. Tuolangi, he wasn't fit. Johnny May wasn't fit, they had sort of Watson, Noel, Marlon Yard and Mike Brown around that and as you said right at the top of this, they needed more from other players and that's exactly what they had then because they had Billy and Maka Vinopola, they had Courtney Laws is carrying, they had Rob Shaw and Haskell smashing people and actually lots of the deficiencies of the backline I think are being caused by the forward not doing their job and the carrying needs to improve massively. Genge worked hard. Noel worked hard, I think. Uh, Ludlam, when he came on, worked hard. But they need more. They need more Courtney. They need more Mara, Toje. They need more... Hmm. Billy was pretty good as well, but they, they need that game line because if you don't have that, there's no platform to play off. And actually, some of us spoke to Danny Kerr after the game and he would probably say a bit more if he was still on the podcast that he's on rather than playing in England 9 jersey, but he was saying that clearly he wants quick ball, and Mm. there were so many occasions where he's fiddling about at the back of a ruck, looking for it, where's the ball what's happening, and sort of glancing out to Smith to see where he is with that, at Harlequins there's no glance, he just knows Mm. and there was a point actually that Eddie Jones makes slightly mischievously, which I think we mentioned on the ruck last week about the halfbacks of the Australian team possibly being a little bit disconnected, whether that was between Nick White and Quade Cooper. And we know that Quade Cooper didn't actually play the game in the end. But you made the point the other day, Alex, when we were writing up stuff that perhaps that's England's problem, that Smith and Kerr are on the same wavelength, but possibly instinctively Mm. Farrell isn't. And it does need time, but the problem is with England at the moment, they don't have time. They need to turn this round in now five days. And if they don't win on Saturday... Then he's staring down the barrel of three nil and regime change, and that is just a fact.
4: Yeah, and they, Eddie's not been helped in this process by Farrell being injured for the whole season, and, and he's tried to implement a system like, like we said, that had that had Slade in it. Um, it's it's tough because we're now, yeah, England are in a, are in a hole. Eddie's got his back against the wall. He, the pressure is at its greatest um, in four years. If we think back to to the 2018 tour of South Africa, you know the parallels are, are stark. Really, England won two out of five in in that year's Six Nations, and the same two, the same two. They Wales got, and Italy, they got beaten at home by the by the Barbarians before they left. Um, quite heavy. That was the game that the Ashton scored his hat trick. Um, they came on tour with with a, an, a new official captain in in uh, Farrell at, at that point. And they went 1-0 down in that series and then they went 2-0 down in that series um, and then Danny Cipriani got picked in a third test and they ground out a win with that little moment of magic from him in the rain in in Cape Town and they did rebuild from there and that was a massive turning point, that tour because Scott Wisemantle had joined the England management team in South Africa and while they were in South Africa Eddie Jones recruited John Mitchell and he brought in two senior coaches who made a big difference to that England setup. He's not going to be bringing any coaches at this t- at this point. We don't think, um, although that's probably always a possibility. <laughs> um, but he needs the same bounce. He needs the same turnaround, and it could really do without it coming in the third test when they're already two nil down because because patience is running out, and and it's not just results; it's the manner of results. Um, you studied it more closely today, Will, but the way that they collapsed after an hour and lost that final quarter, it's like they lost belief and um, uh, all kind of, they lost their grip on the game. And that is not the first time that that's happened, is it? That that, that final quarter issue for England is becoming a major problem. So just going
2: through the last few games in, in this calendar year, let's start in Scotland, Sixty minute mark, England a fourteen ten up, lose the final quarter, ten three, lose the game. Italy they win the final quarter seven nil, fair enough, and win the game thirty-three nil. Wales then the sixtieth minute mark they're seventeen five up, lose the final quarter fourteen six and almost lose the game. Ireland, a lot slightly different context with that one because as we all know, Charlie O's got sent off. They were drawing at the sixty minute mark, fifteen all, lost the final quarter seventeen nil. Lost the game. Then France, you go to the final quarter France is slightly ahead at 18-13 Lose the final quarter 7-0 Good night Vienna Then the Barbars They were a bit further back and got even further back On that one They were 31-21 And then lost the final quarter 21-0 Which was stark And then last Saturday 14-9 man advantage Lose the final quarter 21-14 Conceding 21 straight points so, so it's like
4: every game bar Italy this year, they've lost the final yeah. quarter.
2: Yeah, which is not great. And I'm looking at some stats and bits and pieces for the the, the mall, Monday Mall for Time subscribers I've I've done this morning. And this year, of all Eddie Jones's year, is their worst in terms of conceding points in the second half. They averaged conceding about 12.5 points in the second half. And their previous worst year was last year. Mm. So this is now... Not an anomaly, this is a theme, and actually, it's something that seriously needs to be arrested quite quickly. But what I think the next point I'd like to make is how big a week is this for the leaders and for Eddie if this is going to be his last sort of couple of weeks to prove that he should be the England coach?
4: Well, first of all, on that, there's no indication from anyone that senior at Twickenham that there's any inclination to make a change. I just think that if it goes if it goes three nil then the 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 volume and the uh will will grow to such an extent that they'll have to at least listen to to the reaction and like i say it's not just results England don't have a divine right to win matches like we have to you know obviously they don't and they they they're allowed to lose games and play well that that's sport that's i don't think people criticize that it's the it's the manner and it's the, and it's whether there's a belief that this project that Eddie Jones this latest project when I mean, he's had a few since 2019 um under the banner of create the greatest ever rugby team um which England are just light years away from whether there's a belief that the project that he's working on particularly with the attack can Bear fruit at the World Cup next year, and what he, what Eddie will always argue, is that the system in England does not help him. The access he has to the clubs and the players when they're at their clubs does not help him. Uh, and but the, when he gets them all into camp three months out from the World Cup, that's where he makes his his enormous gains. Um, that's that will be his his argument the whole way through, and, and his and his firm belief. Frankly, I mean, I'm not. He's not just making up. You know that is his firm belief that his best opportunity to improve England will be those three months before the World Cup. That that said, this is a massive week. It's a massive week for for so many reasons. It's a massive test of this new kind of captaincy leadership dynamic that has that has evolved with England. You know, a year or so, ago, yeah, a year ago, he'd moved away from the Saracens um, cabal which he found, because of the the um, salary cap and then the year in the championship, he found that was toxic uh, and deliberately moved away from them. Now, most of those players are back now, bar Elliot Daly, but they're not in leadership positions, or certainly official leadership positions. I think Maru Itoji now is, although he never actually got dropped, um, it's a big test of this new kind of leadership vision, which is a bit more, bit more chilled out, a bit more Courtney Laws, um, a bit more, and Gendre, I suppose, a bit more right, inclusive, in a bit less intense. Allowing it,
2: people to be themselves is what yeah, Courtney was talking about last Friday, which is it?
4: obviously an important thing. But it's a test because a change has happened, and and people will be looking at, at, the, at the leadership and looking at the change and and looking at weeks like this where. England need a reaction. They, they've talked a lot. You know they've talked about they're going to get better. they've talked about um, how hard they work. they've talked about visions and goals and it's time for action. Like they've got this week they have to deliver. So it's a big week for Courtney Laws. Yeah. it's a big week for Ellis Genge. I mean Ellis Genge is delivering himself, but it's a, it's a big week. It's a big week for Smith and Farrell. And sometimes when you walk away to work on yourself, Alex, that is the best revenge.
2: I think, the revenge. I think they should all go down to Brisbane and have a spin class like yeah. us, work on the leg, maybe get the, the legs out of the system, you know, come on, come on everyone. Right, so we're be, we'll try and be a bit slightly more positive about the team when the team's out on Thursday, but we will come back to you from Brisbane, it, the sun has gone here, It's we're two hours a bit further ahead than Brisbane, so... We're going to go and find some dinner.
4: And you're heading up the coast tomorrow. I'm to heading to at see- coast. Yeah, the
2: Sunshine Coast. It's it's been a bit wet and grey, but hopefully by Thursday apparently it's turning. It? Perth was very nice, wasn't it, and sunny. It but-
4: was, and the Wallabies are based a bit out of town here, up at the Sunshine Coast, and Will has um, Will has very kindly volunteered to yeah. head up. I, I can't quite imagine why. We
2: but- would the, the few of us who have got another man here from newspapers have thought it'd be quite nice to have a byline in the newspaper that says Will Kelleher at the Sunshine Coast because that looks quite nice, yeah, does Don't it? forget your trunks. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually on that note. Actually, with the Wallabies, quite a nice piece of news this week that um, they're going to be wearing their Indigenous jersey mm. this for the for, to represent the First Nations people of their country. So it's a cool design that, and they had a, a smoking ceremony, didn't they, today? Um, but yeah, I'm going to go and see what they're up to tomorrow, which is Tuesday for us. But Hopefully, that has been a fine report from the ground in Brisbane for all of you ruckers back home, and we'll throw now back to Al Dimmock because we know he's talking to lots of other people about lots of other tours because there's been lots going on.
3: Interesting stuff from Oz there, particularly about Tom Curry heading home. It's it's just worth noting, we're away to hear a bit of a chat with Liam Napier from the New Zealand Herald who gives us an update on Johnny Sexton, and it's interesting to to bear in mind what's happened with Tom Curry going home with the new mandatory stand-down for 12 days uh, with a head injury. Johnny Sexton, you might remember, went off in the game against the All Blacks fairly early. Um, we're getting updates about his the state of his return to play. A couple of players in the Ireland squad have been stood down for 12 days. We're told that Johnny Sexton may be available for the second test. It's worth bearing that in mind as we listen to what Liam has to say here. So, Liam, um, the reports of uh, the All Blacks death greatly exaggerated. How have you you found the start of this test window for the the ABs?
5: Yeah, I guess there was a lot of pressure on the All Blacks, wasn't there, coming into what's been a a really highly anticipated home series against Ireland. Uh, All three tests uh, are sold out here and that's probably a reflection I guess of the interest, but also the pressure that the All Blacks are under following uh, what was their their worst season in, in 12 years last year. Successive losses to end the season to Ireland and Dublin. And France and Paris, so you know there was a lot of heat on the team and the and the coaching staff to to respond, and and they did that in the first test at Eden Park, a convincing victory. Uh, it was a wee bit of a shaky start, but uh, they kicked into gear in the second quarter, and, and by halftime they were, you know, uh, ahead twenty eight five, scored six tries by the finish against the Six Nations best defensive team. Uh, but I think you, you, you probably saw enough from Ireland. They got them behind the All Blacks at times. And I think, you know, they will be better in the second test. But certainly a pleasing start for the All Blacks and, and a lot of uh, pressure relieved on Ian Foster and his coaching stuff.
3: I, I mean, I've, I've been in New Zealand when there's been, p- been pressure on the, the home side, and it, you know, it, it can get quite heated. But did anyone, I mean, did anyone really see the All Blacks? putting 40 points on a team the calibre of Ireland. I mean, did that catch anyone unawares?
5: Yeah, I think there was, you know, widespread surprise at certainly the margin of victory. Uh, most people gave Ireland a, a good chance. Certainly, I thought that uh, the best chance in this series was the first test. Leading into this test, the All had a number of uh, complications and disruptions. They had um, seven COVID cases within their team, three players and four coaches, including head coach Ian Foster, Ford's coach, John Plumtree, and a couple of others. So they basically weren't with the team the whole week. They only came out of uh, isolation. We've still got seven days of isolation if you get COVID in New Zealand. So they were away from the team, sort of, you know, um, beaming in via Zoom meetings. So uh, basically the senior players and a couple of assistant coaches, Joe Schmidt, got the call-up. So that certainly spiced up the build-up from an Irish perspective. So there are a lot of, um, you know, disruptions around the team, but they sort of put that to one side. And yeah, everyone was very, I think, nervous, anxious was probably, you know, a, a good way to sum up um, All Black supporters leading into that game. Ireland had previously won three of the past five against the All Blacks. They'd never won in New Zealand, but they won the last test in Dublin. So there's certainly a lot of respect for Islands. And uh, I guess, you know, they've certainly um, earned the nemesis tag, I guess, for the All Blacks in recent times. So I think, yeah, there was a uh, certainly surprised at the at the final margin of victory.
3: Really, I mean, it's at Eden Park. I think we were in very short trousers the last time the ABs lost um, lost there. But um, obviously, one of the hallmarks of this game was the was the way that New Zealand really turned up the heat in in that first half. I think there was a period of eight to ten minutes where there was just three tries: boom, boom, boom. Um, where did that come from? But okay, it's a it's a hell of a question that because. Certainly, we've seen them turn on periods of extended pressure. But you know, considering how much nervousness there's, when this w- was around this game. What do you think that contributed to that period where it was where they were firmly on top?
5: It's interesting because they uh, they were on the back foot from the start. Keith Earls scored the opening try, and you know that raises the, the tension and nervousness. But uh, the All Blacks sort of, I guess, settled into their work. They started getting their their line speed on defence. I think that's where they they got a lot of their su- success from. Sevu um, Reese's counter attack try. We know how lethal the All Blacks are from turnover position and, and counter attack, and we saw that a couple of times. That's probably where they got their their game going initially. Uh, Sevu uh, you know ran eighty metres to score. That was a real turning point. Jonathan Sexton went off at that time as well, and Ireland became you know a bit rattled. And then uh, the All Blacks uh, isolated Ireland uh, in their 22 and, and counter rucks. Jamison Gibson Park sort of went for a, a scoot off the line out and got turned over and and then the All Blacks scored from there. They also uh, brought in a new sort of um, attacking structure where they they pushed the ball to their ball carriers, their forward ball carriers three wide of the ruck and that that allowed them to get outside Ireland's sort of initial rush, uh, a bit more time and space and, and allowed them to, to free up the edge edge guys. So that was quite a significant shift. Andy Farrell noted that that's an area they'll have to tidy up. So, yeah, that was a real turning point that sort of the second quarter of the first half, as you mentioned, three tries and some really big performances from the likes of Aaron Smith, Artie Sevilla, just really, you know, coming into their own and and a beautiful grubber from Bowden Barrett and behind the Irish defence for Quintupire to score. And and really by halftime, the game was done. There was, you know, Ireland... Uh, showed a lot of fights but they were never gonna come back and win that match at twenty eight five down at half time.
3: Where does the credit lie from a from a coaching point of view for that attacking tactic that's you know it's we've seen so much, particularly in the northern hemisphere, we've seen so much of the of that sort of blitzing style defense, um, to come up with tactics that counteract that. I mean everyone in the world will be paying attention. Um, where does the credit lie for that?
5: I think Foster's got to take a lot of credit because you know he takes the heat as well, and and I guess there's been frustrations with the All Blacks that they've been stale and predictable, and and we saw that on the on the Northern tour, uh, their their forward runners just got picked off, they got trapped behind the the gain line, uh, their their ruck ball was so slow, and then Bowden Barrett and their playmakers were just swarmed, so they they you know it was a, com- a snowball factor of of issues when it came to uh, being unable to get around that real uh, oppressive rush defense. So this is one tactic that they've come up with to, to sort of, I guess, negate that and it, and it worked well for them the other night, but I'm sure Ireland will go away and, and, you know, counteract that again. So it's uh, a th- That's the beauty of a three test series, isn't it? You get to see that the chess match play out and the, the tactical element, the strategy. So, uh, the All Blacks, it was a, a real win for their uh, initial analysis, and it's going to be really intriguing to see uh, how that evolves throughout the series. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd call this
3: one a chess match, but the sort of arm wrestle at the at the breakdown, and t- you know, stopping things at source tends to be um, a big focus in Test rugby. Andy Farrell had something some bits and pieces to say after this game about the referee's interpretation. Uh, you know, did the All Blacks get one up there, and do you think that we expect? Interpretations to
5: change through the series. Yeah, it was an interesting one because you had an English referee, Carl Dickinson. So you know, you'd think potentially that the Irish should have been more in tune with his interpretations than perhaps the All Blacks. So, uh, but yeah, he was—he wasn't happy, I guess, with uh, rulings around the gates and the ruck, and I guess discipline did did contribute to, to Ireland's downfall. They they invited much, the All Blacks. How
3: much do you think? How much do you think that would be frustration just at the fact that they got one up though?
5: Yeah, I think Yeah, you, you know, you come out and um you you hope to have have an element of of control and, and an advantage there with the Northern Hemisphere referee. So um the breakdown's so crucial, isn't it? That that's that's the source where you shut the all blacks down. Um you slow their pill, you frustrate them, you suffocate them. That's been the blueprint. So um, Ireland couldn't do that and that they need to so uh, they need, need to find a quick fix there this weekend
3: What, what do you expect to see uh, with the New, Zeal- New Zealand in this next week then um, obviously Ireland will want to change they're going to have, it looks like they'll have a, a different fly half because with the with the um, stand down period now changed to 12 days and Johnny Sexton with his history of, of head injury, well you know, we're not going to see him again so how do the All Blacks prepare for that? Does it matter to them? Do they just keep rolling with the have Do you expect to see big changes? What does the week ahead look like? Do you think for the Abbies?
5: It's an interesting scenario. Of and, um, Johnny, uh, sorry, Andy Farrell sort of suggested that he, while he uh, failed his initial HIA, he passed the second one, and he was hopeful that he passed his third. So, um, uh, we initially thought he'd be ruled out for the tour, but perhaps not now. And um, yeah, I thought I thought Joey Carberry was pretty good when he came on, was unlucky, probably should have been awarded his try, in my, in my view I thought he had control of that, so uh, he brings a different a different style that the All Blacks would have to open up to from an All Blacks perspective, they'll, they should get back guys like David Havilli and uh, Jack Goodhue, who were ruled out through COVID uh, Will Jordan was another, but he was later in the week, so he's probably not going to play this week uh, David haveli was expected to start at second five before picking up COVID, but I'm not expecting widespread changes for the All Blacks. I think they'll want to win the series first and then perhaps change things up for the third. There was a lot of conjecture over Scott Barrett's selection at Blindside. Uh, That was the first time he'd played there for the All Blacks since the 2019 semi-final defeat against England. So there's a lot of speculation about whether that was the right move. But uh, I think it's something that you could probably see a lot more of in the future because it worked well from a ball-carrying, from a defensive perspective perspective. He's a big man, particularly against the likes of Ireland, France, and South Africa. The All Blacks need that big body uh, just to carry and clean. So uh, it, was, it was a big tick for the All Blacks because, you know, there's a lot of um, pressure on, on, I guess, that selection and whether it was the right move. Um, but they'll certainly have a big tick in their book. And I think you'll see him there, uh, provided he doesn't get uh, cited, because there was one incident where a uh, shoulder to the head sort of. Uh, Clean out nearly in his own line. He's got a bit of form there, so interesting to see whether he gets sighted or not.
3: Yeah, the sighting commissioners around the world are going to be getting a lot of attention throughout this these summer series, I, I would imagine. Uh, I was just wondering if you could just give us a note on the captain, Sam Kane. Being being the all-black skipper, al always comes with a lot of scrutiny, but, but it seems particularly strong in his case. How, how did he show up?
5: Yeah, so he's had a pretty disruptive year. He he had a, a second kid, but he also had a, a knee injury. That coming into this test, he played, you know, the one game for the Chiefs off the bench in the Super Rugby semi final against the Crusaders in the past sort of five weeks to a month. So he was a bit underdone, uh, but he played sixty seven minutes, um, defended well, led well. Uh, so it was a a, a big big tick for Sam Kane and also throughout the week I guess when you're missing your head coach and assistant coach a lot of uh, responsibility falls on the senior players and, and the captain to to bring the team together and and sort of you know hold the fort so to speak so um, yeah it was a good start for Sam Kane and as you mentioned there's always a lot of pressure and scrutiny on on his role particularly when you've got guys like Artie Severe and, and Dalton Papali and you know some real depth in, in those open side positions so um, it was a, a real tick for Sam Kane, and, and he should get better from here with, with the game time because he, you know, leading into this match, he was certainly underdone. So he should be better for that performance.
3: Well, Liam, it's always nice to get your calming demeanor on record here. Um, hopefully, we'll catch up with you again later in the series to to sort of test the temperature down under.
5: Look forward to it, Dimms, and uh, hopefully Scotland can uh, pick up a win for you in, in Argentina. Yeah, I
3: You had to throw that in there at the end. Thanks to Liam for that. And yes, we will get to Scotland versus Argentina. We're going to have a little bit of a stay of execution first, though, because next we're heading to South Africa to hear from Brendan Nell. We're now joined uh, from a car park in South Africa by Brendan Nell. First, a bit of a a review of, of the last test. I mean, that was a proper game of rugby, wasn't it?
6: That was a huge game of rugby. And I must admit, uh, I think uh, a lot of the South Africans, well, not just fans, but players were probably surprised with the intensity that Wales brought. And uh, there's some of us that have been saying it the whole week. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, there were a couple of voices out there that wrote Wales off straight away. And uh, I think we all, some of us who've been around longer know that that's rather stupid because they they are a quality team. And especially if you just look at the names in that back line, I mean, there's some real quality there.
3: So, how, how did, from your point of view, how did South Africa manage to, to squeak it? I mean, there was a bit, uh, you know, Wales really threw a lot at you and even with a, a couple of players down um, early on, it was it was eeksy-peeksy. So how, how did South Africa get across the line?
6: Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's no secret how South Africa play, and and to stop them, you need to stop their strengths. I think Wales did that pretty well in that first half. I mean, they got two good. Well, one was a, was maybe a bit of a lucky try from a South African point of view, but the first one was an excellent try. Um, yeah, and and South Africa didn't get their, their, their yeah their rolling ball going. They didn't get the the uh, the reward from the scrums, um, and generally some. Very poor, poor tactical kicking. To be very honest, uh, I thought uh, yeah, a lot has been said about Elton Janssens, but um, yeah, he wasn't very good on the day. But he wasn't the only one. The rest of the Clarks' tactical kicking wasn't good. And yeah, I mean, yeah, at one point Wales had 70% possession, and and they're a quality team, so they made the most of it. I just thought the box were extremely poor in that first half, and uh, yeah, tactically, yeah, they looked extremely rusty.
3: Yeah, a lot, you're right, a lot has been made of Elgin Yanchis and, and how he played Obviously a lot of talk about the lack of high intensity rugby that he's played in the, the last half year or so uh, How much did it change uh, to have a reliable player like Vili LaRue come onto the field And what did you make of Willemsa when he, when he moved across?
6: Well, I, th- I thought you know the box have been talking about Valera as a, as a project player, as a, a, another front stain. You know the guy, the guy that gives them the ten, twelve, fifteen on the bench, and he's an extremely talented player. But in the first half, he also looked a bit nervy. He, he put in a, a few strange kicks and he tried, you know, one or two runs that didn't quite work. Um, yeah, first of all, on Elton, um, you know, you can you can blame the player for, for for being rusty and being and being poor on the day. But yeah, he was selected, and Test match rugby is not exactly where you go out and you know, you shake off that rust. Yeah, if he hasn't played for six, seven months, yeah, that's that's yeah, on the on the coaching team, there should have been an opportunity created for him somewhere to play. And uh, yeah, I don't think Test rugby is the place for that. Uh, so as much as people blaming Elton, and he's an easy target for people, yeah, you know, I think that's also a bit on the coaching staff. That you know, we're trying something, It was a gamble, it backfired on them. Uh, but yeah, when the LaRue came on the second half, I mean, you could see straight away the change in play. That uh, he, yeah, you know, coming up behind the pods there and sort of directing play in the, playma- in the, in the, in the playmaking position, and uh, and suddenly Viliame had a lot more freedom as well, and uh, he, yeah, just the confidence seemed to rise. Not just there in, in the backline as well. You suddenly saw balls. Yeah, in the first half, I think the ball went past twelve once. Um, yeah, and in the second half, suddenly South Africa looked a lot. A lot stronger on the counter attack with with you know, guiding them.
3: What was the atmosphere like, Brendan? Uh, you know, a lot of people have been starved from rugby full crowds for a long time. Did it feel like an occasion?
6: I definitely did. Now, this one, that was probably the best aspect of the entire day. I mean, yeah, you know, I've I've sort of been at, at Loftus now. And I've been you know, covering rugby there for the last twenty odd years, and and um, I've seen some big occasions there, uh, and this. This rivalled an All black Springbok test match in terms of atmosphere. I think you had people there starved of rugby. I mean, we were there probably about five hours before the, before the game, and it was packed outside. The, the The pubs were open. You know, people were just soaking in the atmosphere. It was a lovely day. Uh, you know, quite warm for a winter's day in South Africa. And it just, you know, the atmosphere at Loftus is intimidating at, at, at on on a good day for an opposition team. I thought, uh, you yeah, know, on Saturday it was 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 pretty pretty intimidating to go walking along with the fans. And, yeah, you know, I think Wells did extremely well under the circumstances, you know, with a crowd like that. I think the boxer may affect the box a bit more, you know, just playing in front of a crowd at home for the first time in three years. And it was an absolutely
3: amazing day of rugby Yeah, I mean You forget how much you miss crowds like that Don't you? And uh, I saw Dan Bigger talking after the game About, you know The level of feistiness in the game But also facing an intimidating crowd And it seemed like he really relished it What, what can we expect from Bloemfontein?
6: I think more of the same. You know, I'm one of those. I mean, I know there was a couple of people taken back by Dan Biggers' comments, but, you know, the Springboks are number one in the world. They're known for their physicality. They, you know, they've got a target on their backs now as number one team in the world, and they've got to expect that. And and they've got to be better than that. And and I thought Wales got into their skin extremely well. And, you know, I I have no problem with Dan Biggers' comments. I thought, you know, at times I thought maybe it might have got Close to boiling over, and a, and and and, a, and a, maybe a stricter referee might have taken the, you know, the emotion down a little bit. But um, I think we're probably going to see the same. I don't see Wales backing off. I see them. I see them probably trying that again. Whether they've got enough, yeah, I, I still feel maybe that was their best chance against the box. I don't think the box will be as rusty the second time around. And I'm not sure Wales, if either player two. Yeah, its injury have got the same sort of depth that the Springboks have at the moment.
3: Yeah, speaking as a neutral, I can say that it was it was compelling stuff. I, I thought I thought Dan Bigger spoke really well, and I just it felt like a, as I said at the top, a proper Test match. Just just last thing, Brendan, if you could pick out one thing that you think people should be aware of, or that we expect to be a bit different on the field uh, this this coming Saturday, what are you expecting?
6: Well, I'm expecting a, a quite a different Springbok team, to be very honest. I mean, you know, the Boxer made it quite clear last week that they're looking to give their whole 42-man squad a run through the three tests. And so I think from what we're hearing, the, uh, you're going to get a couple of uh, different players back. I mean, everyone's spoken about maybe Peter Stefft-Toye returning, Andre Pollard returning, but I think you're going to see a couple of surprises there. Uh, Evan Riss, who anybody who's watched the URC will know how good he is. I think he's probably in line for his debut this week. Um, yeah, I think we're probably going to see somebody like Marcel could see somewhere on the bench or in the team. You're going to see Andre Estes and might get a run as well. So Wells might face a bit of a different challenge this week. But I think sure, the intensity will be the same.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, ...is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight... Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
3: Well, as promised, we've got to our final stop on the World Tour we're off to Argentina, yeah, we're going to talk about Scotland's loss to the Pimas here. Our own Mark Palmer is, is down there and here's what he had to say about everything that happened at the weekend.
1: Dear me, I think we're all about out Alan, it was certainly uh, some somewhat of a disappointing start, uh, wasn't it? Um, yes, uh, literally nothing really went right from from first to last. They, they played for about 10 minutes of the game at the start of the second half with a, with a couple of tries that kind of dragged them back into it very briefly, but but either side of that, it was a, a real mess, um, both in attack and defence. Um, but, I, I, you know, the the, the the saddest thing, I think, is it wasn't actually clear what they were trying to do, only that they were, they were doing it very badly. So um, a, a fairly low bar set in terms of standards that they'll have to surpass this weekend, but, you know, I think they know they're going to need to be masses better on just about every level and in every area to, to stand a chance in this second test.
3: So, are we expecting assault and in Salta?
1: Well, there you go. You've you just nicked one of my, my, my perspective intros for this week's copy, Alan. So, um, I, I, I honestly don't see it getting much better. Also, for the fact that, you know, you know, that was the Pumas playing for the first time together since November. They're going to have had another week's training under their belt. They've seen what Scotland have to offer, or some of it at least. Um, I, I think they will also put it, put in a more rounded performance in the second game. So, Unfortunately, I think it is. Uh, it is only going to get tougher at this stage.
3: Okay, now I want to ask about the the direction of travel for Scotland at the moment because it seems like they've been trending downwards um, in the last year. Um, but firstly, you know, on the positive side, as you said, Puma's back in the saddle. Almost three years since they last played at home. Um, you know, what was the atmosphere like and? You know, how did they play? What did you make of the way that they played? Was there a sense that you know there was something bubbling under there?
1: Definitely, and there was a real kind of mix of you know what we've seen from some of the best famous teams down the years. That you know obviously we know they're going to be they're going to carry the fight to anyone up front. Um, the fantastic pack, sort of both set piece and in the loose, those guys were uh, who we don't name checked last week. Uh, we're, were were all fantastic. Um, but there was also that queer undercurrent of wanting to move the ball at pace as well when, when, when the situations arose um the you know sort of the, the, um, the there was queer attacking intent there which which told of the influence of uh, Conto and, and Michael Cheka. so I think they're they're trying to combine the sort of best of the the old and new worlds there in, in terms of their traditions and and building something a bit more expansive. so yes definitely uh, definite positive signs from them. Uh, the atmosphere was terrific. It was uh, it was great, as you can imagine. There was a real hunger to, to see this side of action, having not had that chance since I think August twenty nineteen, um, and up there in Huhui, which w- we did pronounce correctly last week. I'm told. Um, well done. Uh, us. They hadn't had them. They, didn't, they hadn't had them since twenty seventeen. So y- there was a real obvious kind of um, you know expectation and excitement around the place all week when we were there that that they had them in town. Um, there did what various kind of civic receptions and open training sessions and whatnot, so um, which were all mobbed, um, and then the, the the venue itself was kind of old school South American football stadium, packed out from early on, noisy bands, lots of shouting and singing, lots of booing for the Scottish kickers. It was mm. it was great. So um, yeah, from, from that point of view, a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Because
3: uh, obviously you were the lone Scotsman in the press box. You're the only lad that's travelled over. To cover to cover this series, so ch- chatting away in the press box to, to fellow writers, is there a sense amongst the the pros that there's a there's a bit of a checkout effect already?
1: Definitely, and you can you can see that in terms of um, you know in terms of their own interactions with them. I think they're. Um, you know, they speak very positively of the of the the impact he's made, sort of off the field as well, in terms of better communication with them and a more openness around around the place. And you know, my Spanish is not the best, but I could you know I can appreciate that he was making a clear effort in his press conferences last week. He was you know it's switching pretty comfortably between the two languages. So you know, I think there's been a a lot of um, what's the word? Uh, you know, the, the, not thankful or grateful, but the, you know, I think they appreciate the effort that's been made from that. Front too. So, and again, you know, the, the vibe from that I got from them was that they, they were really keen to see this kind of new mix of you know traditional Pumas kind of values and um, and, and playing style, but also trying to broaden their horizons a wee bit and and, and introduce that attacking threat. And, and why wouldn't you with you know some of those backs that they have like Buffelie and Caneras and Sanchez? Who unfortunately, I think it's going to miss the rest of the series with the, the injury picked up early doors on Saturday. That um, you know they, they, they've got a real kind of cluster of, of talent there in the back, so you know it makes sense trying
3: to use it okay from a scottish point of view firefighting no. um what can be fixed short term maybe maybe catching kickoffs would be, be a fo- i mean i feel like i've been saying that my entire lifetime but re- restarts could could be something that could be improved upon where, where do you think the easier wins nothing will be easy but where the easier wins would be for scotland improvement
1: i think you know at a basic level, you know, playing guys in the, in the right positions might, might be a great start. Uh, I know it sounds, it's easy to be wise after the event, but, you know, Rory Hutchinson's been tearing it up all year with with, it, with um, Northampton as a, a second playmaker outside Dan Bigger. Um, he, he was OK at 15 uh, at the weekend, but, you know, and, and in the flashes where Scotland were able to get him involved this first or second receiver, he looked, you know, every inch of where we know he can be. But I would love to see him getting a run at 12 this weekend in Salta. Um also to take some of that burden off Blair Kinghorn, who, you know, as we all know, is a, a very novice 10 at this level and produced exactly the sort of performance you'd expect from someone you're describing in those terms. It was a, a very mixed bag, to, to put it politely, um, but you know, I feel that having Hutchinson there with him would, would, would take some of the weight off him in terms of feeling he has to pull things out of his backside all the time. Um, so uh, that would be one quick win. Um, I, I think, you know, breakdown was a struggle again. And I, I think we'll probably see Rory dards back in there uh, at, the, at the weekend. He, you know, had a, what we thought was a season-ending knee injury with Glasgow at the back end of the campaign, but has made a miraculous recovery and, you know, came off the bench at the weekend. But I think his sort of ability um would be, um, would be would be most useful. That's always assuming that, that Hamish Watson doesn't make it in, t- in readiness to, to start. Gregor, after the game at the weekend, said he, he thought we'd be involved in some capacity in this game With he picked up a week in a chest and shoulder injury in the previous week. But uh, if he doesn't start, then I'd like to see dards in there. But, you know, never mind these sort of personnel issues. I think they, they just generally have to lift it. And, um, you know, look like they want to be here as well. I felt like it took them so long to grow into the game at the weekend, which was unfathomable given, you know, the, the thing you could have predicted from a mile out was uh, that the Pumas would make an exceptionally fast start with all that emotional um, win behind them, as, as we've just been talking about, the the, the crowd and the, the the desire to kind of produce for them after so long apart. And Scotland just didn't, didn't appear to be up for it in, in very basic terms for, for the best part of 40 minutes. So... You know, they really need to set their stall out early doors at the weekend. Show that they're up for the fight in all senses, and and you know, at, at least give themselves a swing a few punches because that was the most disappointing thing at the weekend. That I felt they went down with having barely kind of uh, showed anything in their armoury.
3: I've been desperately sitting here whilst you've been chatting, trying to think of a, a way to work Darge Healing Limited in, but I think that's maybe too niche of a, a movie reference or or pun. Um, positives, I mean? let's. Are there, have there been any positives from, from your point of view uh, from Scotland at the weekend? Was there anyone that, that showed up and you thought, okay, there's a glimp there's glimpses there?
1: Well, as, as I say, I'll stick with Hutchinson again, you know, I've been a, a long been banging the drum to have him involved in some capacity. I think he's been grossly underused the last three years. So, you know, the the you know, the some of his handling and the line he hit for his try, you know, showed exactly the player that's in there and we just have to find or Scotland just have to find that. You know, a, a much better way of involving him more more frequently in the game. And as I say, I think the answer to that is moving him to twelve. Um, other than that, I'm I'm struggling to be honest. Um, I'm not sure that that that, that anything uh, <laughs> that anything merits it, including in that in that positives bag. But the one thing that they were all you know clinging to post match was that they felt that these things are fixable. And you know, I know we've all heard that many times, but. You know, they clearly feel that it's within their gift to, you know, there was their own deficiencies that, that, that handed this on a plate to the Pumas. So um, whether or not that's that was actually the case, we'll, we'll discover as we go on uh, when we get a clearer picture of where, where, where Argentina are at as well. But, you know, certainly the, the vibe in the Scotland camp is that they can and, and must do a lot better.
3: Thanks to Mark Palmer for joining us from Argentina, as well as Brendan Nell from South Africa, Liam Napier from New Zealand and the Brisbane Two. We'll be back again next week with more reaction and analysis from the summer tours. There's also the Big Rugby World Cup qualifier coming up as Chile faced the USA, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Thanks, as ever, to Alfie Reynolds for producing this podcast. Don't forget, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're feeling generous, leave us a comment.
0: If you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
6: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.